Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and, like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And unfortunately, we won't have the dialogue part going so well because our phone system is not working. So um, if you'd like to participate in the conversation, we ask you to do that by email, by emailing info at weru.org at any time during the program. And um, the the staff, um, volunteers, will pass along any notes that uh, um, are pertinent and we'll try to respond um, on our our program. Well, no matter where we live, um, in the city or the country, in the mountains, by the sea, in the desert, there are things about our place that matter, that shape community life and culture. And no matter where we live, there are those among us who are working to save what is threatened. And this morning, we're going to talk with Alix Hopkins of Pownall, Maine, author of Groundswell, Stories of Saving Places and Finding Communities. And uh, she'll share some of the stories from that book, and uh, including her work with Portland Trails. Um, and she was executive director of Portland Trails for about eight years. Alix? Yep. Well, welcome to talk, talk of the Towns. I'm so glad you could be with us this morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm going to take off my headphones. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about um, how you got interested in this work of saving places and, and uh, maybe use your story of Portland Trails as, as a way into that. Well, uh, I grew up on a farm and um, always loved being around the fields and woods around the farm and um, rode ponies and just had had a a very special childhood i also um when i was a senior in in high school i was given the gift of um, being dumped off in a coastal village uh on the coast of labrador uh through a organization called qlf quebec labrador foundation and we were um given two months to be resourceful and work with the children and with the towns and we had no running water and the freshest fruit was jello and i can tell you lots of stories about that but what it did for me was to be able to uh understand that i was able to make a place for myself in a 
small village, get to know the people. Uh, it was really life-changing, and that was back in 1972. And what, what, what did you observe about their sense of place, the place that they called home? How did you begin to understand their connection to that place that you were living in as a guest? Well, it was very remote, and there really weren't even roads at that time in between the villages, but they had a rich uh, music and arts culture. Mm-hmm. The music was Celtic, and as, as you probably know, um, and they hung on every word we said, which was really very flattering. But um, they, um, they're, they're the small towns um, were, you could just tell that they were very close and that they, the sea and the rocks and the shore were all very much a part of who they mm-hmm. were, their music, their, their food, um, and uh, no roads. So it was a very, as I said, transformational experience. Sure. And so what led you to eventually uh, to Portland Trails? Because you've lived in many different places. I have. Right. Um, I f- first, uh, well, the, when, the, when the job was first advertised, I love to tell this story. I was really unsure. I've, I've done conservation work. I've done political organizing. I've worked in a PR division of an advertising agency. But, but when the job was first advertised, I thought, oh, I'm not sure I really want to spread gravel on the ground. That isn't really what I really want to do. But because it was in Portland and, it, and, and because it was urban, it was by nature collaborative. And I thought that there was a lot of latitude to go in and um, create networks with people who, who lived and worked in Portland. And so I really took it on a leap of faith. And it just became... It was at the right time, right place, um, and I realized that I was pretty decent at being a collaborative leader. Mm. So Portland Trails is is based on a 100-year-old plan. Um, So tell us, you know, what kind of brought things together so you could create an organization that was actually fulfilling that plan. Yeah. Well, I didn't actually create the organization. There were some – there was a – it was a 100-year-old vision um, that came to fruition – when the city council finally took a took a look at that and said, we need to make this real. We need to create what they call the Shoreway Access Plan, which focused on connecting um, schools and uh, shorelines, riverfronts, harborfronts, and uh, it took the right leadership. It took the right timing. It was at an economic downturn, and several proposals to create marinas and and condos fell through. So the uh, scenic Eastern Prom Trail that it had almost been developed just became this very un- underused, unused part of the city with spectacular views. But it was unsafe. It was strewn with broken glass, and uh, it was just a it was lying unused. Um, and so it was combination of economics, leadership, and timing. And uh, a group of people got together afterwards, after the Shoreway Access Plan was passed, and said, "You know, we better, we better organize around this, or otherwise, this great plan will gather dust." Mm. So the plan was um, by Frederick Law Olmsted. Yes, right. the same. Um, um, firm that designed Central Park and Boston's emerald necklace. So it was it was literally a gem of a plan, but for various reasons didn't ever see the light until the time and the circumstances were right. Mm. So as as you came into the organization, as you said, you didn't create it, but um, there were um, three lawyers, I believe. Or three some... that turned into eight lawyers. Uh-huh. A lawyered organization. It was. I was, a little, I was saying, uh, I was a little anxious about that because 
Uh, I, I didn't know that, you know, w- w- what's the adage? Ask, if you want something to get done, ask busy people. And they turned into to out to be tremendous assets. Mm-hmm. And we ended up um, complementing them with other board members and other types of volunteers. But they really um, were the perfect people to mm-hmm. start the organization. Mm-hmm. So describe what it is now, and then we'll go back and hear some of the stories that, that um, you know, led to that point. What is Portland Trails now? Yeah. Well, it began as um, being focused on creating 30 miles of trails, and they're now up to 50 miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's their goal. And they started with me. Well, I, I, there was one person uh, before me for a, a bit, and started with me and now there were about eight people on staff they grew to encompass uh, a an environmental education program a school ground greening program which now hooks in with i think at least 40 schools in the greater portland area um there is a trail building component it's become a, a really important part of the com- community development fabric in portland as i said we didn't know back at the at that time that it was going to evolved to encompass so much more than just trails. Mm, mm. So um, 40 or 50 miles of trails and describe uh, how would you enter that trail system or what are some of the places that some of our listeners might recognize as part of the trail system? Well, the hub of it is um, Back Cove, Mm. which um, was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted's firm. Uh, It's really like a network. And so that's the hub. But um, the trails connect from Back Cove uh, to the Eastern Prom Trail to the downtown. There are different types of trails. That's probably the most developed trail. It has a stone dust path as well as a paved path. But there are also trails along the Stradwater River in the woods, which are some of the most beautiful trails. Part of what um, resonated for people about Portland Trails is that there have always been beautiful parts, that, but nobody knew about them. And so access um, has been... Uh, really important part of the success of Portland mm. Trails. And it's true in any small town, city, wherever. There are beautiful parts that um, it's it's really um, so meaningful to have access to some of those mm. places. Well, I th- I've done programs about trails in the past, and it's that notion that um, people used to use trails in a highly utilitarian fashion. They mm-hmm. needed to get from point A to point B, and they used the best way they could to get there, and they created a path or a trail. And and now there's that, but there's also getting to special places right. within close um, access to a city. That makes it more important. Right. One of the things that you said um, has to do with building small successes in um, periodically, whether it's every month or every year. And one of those, um, you told the story of, of a waterfall. Yeah. Tell us that story. Yeah. Well, um, I do believe that it's really important for any kind of nonprofit or, or initiative to, to strategize around what what you can build upon. Um, and we were given a one-acre parcel that contained Portland's only natural waterfall. And in all honesty, we were given it several years before we decided that it would be good timing in the context of any other types of projects to promote it. So um, we worked um, 
with this one family, their name happens to be Jewel. The, the, the waterfall wasn't named, so we thought it would be lovely to name it Jewel Falls which is what it is and we worked with the Rotary Club to build a bridge across the top of it and it is also adjacent to the main Audubon for a river sanctuary that is now owned by Portland Trails um, so it really in essence opened up a whole new city park mm. more rural city park it's in, in the western part of Portland but it's a lovely spot and no one knew about it and it actually probably wasn't all that safe back then, but mm-hmm. now it's it's visited regularly, and people really enjoy to see it, especially during the runoff months when it's really full. But it's beautiful any time of year. Mm. You said that you didn't anticipate that um, this work would be, um, in essence, community building. It was, you know, you you thought it was a, as a trail organization, but you found that it over time it was a community building um, effort. Yeah, so talk a little bit about that. I think it's true um, in the land conservation that was my background is is land conservation and trails being uh, a community building aspect of land conservation portland trails is actually an urban land trust mm-hmm. but i think um it, and and again it was back in the early 90s when things really started getting to get going that d- the um the exercise of creating a common vision and drawing volunteers to give that give life and form to that vision um, helps people understand um, that they ha- have something to offer and that the results end up being b- way far beyond what you originally intended mm. and uh, I think I'm one of those people I didn't know that I had talents as a collaborative leader and there are a lot of people out there just look I call them stars looking for a reason to shine Mm. And uh, so all us alongside me were we, we purposefully chose a can-do board of directors who were kind of ascending in their careers. And all alongside of me, we all learned and grew, and people have gone on to run for office. They have gone on to undertake bigger and broader projects. And so it ended up, to our great surprise, being this tremendous community-building tool. It became a really important part of the city of Portland. We worked with all of the different departments, planning and parks and recreation and the public works departments, and we became a really effective and um, affectionate team. We really enjoyed each other's company. So Mm -hmm. it was the perfect example of collaboration. Mm. And that notion that um, people could take pride in something that they had created together. Right. Yes. Right. As for example, the schools program, um, Portland Trails goes in and works with schools, uh, the kids and teachers, and helps them to identify where they might want a trail, how they can create a vision, a vision map, how they can f- get it funded, how they can promote it with parents and um, the the powers that be and within their neighborhoods. And so it really is an empowering experience for them to, from scratch, create a trail and see it happen. And then to take their parents or their grandparents or their cousins and say, I built that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Well, we're he- he- you're here listening to uh, Talk of the Towns, our guests today, as we talk about collaboration and conservation stories from Maine and the Middle East, um, is Alix Hopkins. And she's a consultant at this time, uh, project director of Riverwalk in Biddeford. We'll hear about that a little later. And author of Groundswell, Stories of Saving Places and Finding Community. Um, we don't have our phone system up um, at this time, but you, if you have a question or a comment, um, you may email us at info 
at weru.org, and they'll pass those questions or comments along to us here in the studio. Um, so what led you to, to, to write a book? <laughs> you didn't start out to think about writing books. What led you to Groundswell? It's funny that you say that. I was, I was saying that the only thing I, I was an English major, but I wrote new, our newsletters and grants, and that was it. But after I left Portland Trails, I knew that, as I said, there were a lot of people out there like me with a lot of potential, but needing a way to maybe a little inspiration and a little training, and. Um, I actually talked to a lot of different people and someone suggested, well, why don't you write a book of stories, including Portland Trails, um, from across the country. So I had no idea what I was getting into, but I knew that there was some value in trying to put together those stories. And it took five years. It was really the most, at the time, the most challenging thing to try to take stories and um, extract wisdom and, and inspiration from them. But I... Um, worked with some of my colleagues in the National Park Service and the Trust for Public Land and the Nature Conservancy and other national entities and got spread a wide net and found some complementary stories, um, including a story on collaborative environmental art, which I believe is also a really important part of this, and uh, had an advisory committee. And it was, in it, of course, a collaborative experience in and of itself. So, um, and I um, got some grants, and the Trust for Public Land did publish it. And um, it's a gorgeous book. It's really, really a wonderful book. Yeah, I feel like uh, you know, again, it was another transformational experience. Everything I've done has I've learned so much from all of it, and created little satellite pockets of community in all of the places where the stories are told. Tell us um, maybe one of those stories. I know um, one uh, you uh, related in a class at College of Atlantic yesterday, having to do with the Bronx River. We yeah. don't think of the Bronx as being a place with nature. Yeah. Well, that's the important part, you know, just like uh, the trails, um, the r- rivers also have uh, their their uh, amenities that people don't know much of the landscape around the rivers. And uh, the Bronx River Project, people had always wanted to uh, clean the rivers up for 17 or 20 years. They had been working, various individuals had been working on trying to gain traction uh, on the river cleanup, but it was a really daunting task. And um, about maybe 15 years ago, uh, a young woman was hired to, who understood the importance of collaboration and got 75 different corporations, uh, organizations, agencies, individuals, political officials together to create a vision for cleaning up the river. Um, And because of its location, the Bronx River starts in one of the wealthiest counties in the country, Westchester County, and flows through the poorest. And um, we're able to promote the value of cleaning up the river and worked with Army Corps of Engineers. And they pulled out literally from pulling cars and tires out of the river to creating an environmental education program to getting um, people out on the river in canoes um, to engaging writers and artists to depict the possibilities for the river. One of the photographs you shared was a a kind of a corrugated metal, you know, piece that was probably separating scrap metal or something like that. And there was this scene on it. 
Yeah, they started with just painting scenes on corrugated metal um, fencing to just say, you know, this could be different. This could so look these different. Were, these were scenes of what it could look yeah. like, or maybe it did look like 150 years ago. Yep. I mean, some people didn't even know there was a river there. There was so much scrap metal in there. And um, so they ended up creating pocket parks along the river, building docks. Um, a, some nonprofits, Project Row is a really important um, and successful nonprofit that um, teaches kids to uh, build boats, and and uh, there there are a number of nonprofits um, and river street, riverfront restoration. Um, they and the the last thing I said yesterday was was that the city of New York has a seal. The seal has a um, beaver on it. Oh, the, the city the, seal. The city the seal has a beaver on it, and there seal. hadn't been a beaver in 250 years. And maybe five years ago, after all, so much of the cleanup had been undertaken, people fish there again. Uh, you, you know, we I went on the river and talked to fishermen who had never even known they could fish, much less fish there. But about um, five years ago, a real beaver showed up. And uh, it, it achieved national press because there hadn't been a beaver there in so long. And they named it after their congressman, Jose Serrano. And the beaver's name is Jose. And I guess a female showed up. And maybe that will bring its own problems. Um, but it's just a wonderful story of possibility and restoration. Mm. And it seems like um, then the community saw their river as an asset. Right. And they built upon that many, many different ways. Right. Right. Rather than being a sewer. Right. Or, you know, a place to get rid of stuff, which right. m- many of our rivers were. Well, tell us maybe another story from, from the book Groundswell. Um, let's see. Some of the other stories. There are six of them. Um, I did. I'll, I'll tell the, the community postcard story. Um there was a competition um, in in northern New England to uh, come up with ways to build community in an artistic and environmental sense. And um, a, a couple of uh, a writer and a sculptor got together and decided they were going to create a community postcards project in this small town in Vermont. And they handed out about four or five hundred throwaway cameras and went, said to everybody, go on out and photograph your town, what it means to you, whatever, just go out and photograph. And we will put the photographs on the walls of the Grange Hall and hold a potluck and everyone from the town, 600 people, come and have some dinner and look around and see how your fellow community people um, view your town. And they had thousands of photographs all along the walls and many of the people in the town showed up and it, it really helped them see their town in new lights how other people view it um it was a really an eye-opening experience and um they chose the top tw- people voted they chose the top 20 images and um made postcards out of them. And my favorite is a picture called Connor Plays to the Cows, and it's a photograph taken of a young boy playing a saxophone with his music is on the ground in front of him, and there is about 
10 or 12 cows in a circle looking at him like they're his audience um, and his mother took the photograph so it was just a very imaginative and community building experience that was very cheap and easy to do mm. so, so when you went there um, you went there kind of after the fact you yeah. went there during the process no. what what did people remember about that process well they were just saying how surprising it was to mm. see how how other people looked at you know a place they'd lived in all their lives it mm. just was really as I said magical and eye-opening um, expansive experience mm. so all of these stories about um, kind of a connection between community and place um, and saving places um, um, you had some folks who were pretty skeptical I think in Montana is yeah, that right yeah um, about conservation they ranchers are not particularly um, they don't start out thinking about conservation but mm. somehow this the process of working together to save a place turned them around you're right and it also had um, there, there are two pieces it's the place itself but there also has to be some economic benefit too mm. because a lot of the people who love the places have to be able to make a living there and in Montana in particular just like the coast of Maine uh, a lot of wealthy people have come in and bought up ranches and the four, third and fourth generation ranchers can no longer stay there so um, a, a big national conservation organization came in and created an advisory committee whose members many of whom were very skeptical but who took a leap of faith and said well we have nothing to lose we might as well go and work together and see what happens and uh, they have become passionate advocates for conservation because they were listened to and because some of their solutions um, were taken into consideration and uh, and adopted Mm. so what did they get out of it what did the ranchers um, get out of this project? Well, one example was um, early on uh, to it, conservation began as an altruistic thing where wealthy people could donate the development rights and didn't receive any economic compensation. And um, some of these ranchers were able to sell conservation easements and be compensated and therefore be able to capitalize um, some of the the uh, elements of the ranch, so equipment it, 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 and Again, things. it goes back to that notion of, of owning property as a bundle of rights yeah. and the idea that you're giving away some of those rights. If you're altruistic and you don't need the money, you give it away. Right. But you could you could sell that right, right to develop, right? Yeah. And so it ends up um, enhancing your own um, your own production capabilities with right. equipment or or um, new stock, new cattle stock, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So I met and talked with some of these people. They had great names like Dusty and Stony. They were, re- I mean, it was such a gift. I I look at my book and about those. Um, Getting to know the people from each of the stories is such a gift to, to have a glimpse into um, their lives and into how things have evolved for them and how conservation and um, community has have has helped them to be able to stay in these places that they love. Mm-hmm. And you began to, to um, uh, as you as you concluded the book, you began to put together some threads or some themes about lessons that you de- derived from these stories. What were some of those? Things things that maybe surprised you a little bit. Well, you know, not supposed so much surprised mm. me as reinforced my own experience at Portland Trails at how um, how many different ways that these projects that that collaboration builds friendships, community, democracy, uh, environmental quality, um, education. Um, 
pride. They just really reinforced um, my, what I had already learned. Mm. And, and when I was able to share those stories with other people, for example, in the Bronx, I went and when I was the first time I went there, um, I spoke with a young woman who had grown up in the projects and told her my experience of, of transformation and empowerment at Portland Trails you know, as, the, as the, my own experience. She said, you know, I got goosebumps when you said that because the very same thing happened to me. So I didn't know what I was, I mean, I, I really like people, mm -hmm. but I was unsure about how to talk to someone whose background was so different. I grew up with the pony, you know, <laughs> uh, but that commonality of experience, I, I just wanted to cry. It was just so neat because mm -hmm. um, they were so similar and mm -hmm. it just broke through all of the, my, my concerns about not having enough in common with right. her. And so for me, it was really affirming that I am in the right profession, that I've met some of the most wonderful people, and that it's, 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 an, it, it, it's translate. It's a, it's a, there's humanity in the type of work that we do, and it, it translates everywhere. Mm. And, and I think you explained that when you started out, you didn't know what you were doing with Portland Trails. You didn't know that this was a community building process. No. You didn't know how to do this work. No. But looking back, then you derive some lessons. And in, in interviewing these other um, stories, uh, the people of these other stories, you derive some lessons and you try to write them down so other people right. can learn from that. Right. And I had an advisory committee, um, part of the book, who I chose because they would tell me exactly what they thought. And... Mm. Um, even if I didn't want to hear it. And we worked, it was very always very interesting. Our meetings were always a very lively discussions. And we also, at the end of the book, came up with 40 different questions and answers on various stages of collaboration and on working with challenging people and how to listen and how to um, include those challenging people in the process. So... Mm -hmm. um, I, again, you know, that's what I love about this work is that everybody learns something, mm. and you never know what you're going to learn mm. too. That's right. Yeah, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. Our guest is Alix Hopkins, who is a consultant and uh, author of Groundswell: Stories of Saving Places and Finding Community. It's published by a Trust for Public Land. So um, this set of experiences also then led you, opened up, you said you started, uh, you like the, the notion of starting in your backyard but moving to the world. Yeah. So what's the next chapter? Yeah. Well, I, I just want to... <laughs> oh, let, me, let me remind okay. our listeners that they, they can't call in today because our phone system is down, but if they have a comment or a question, they can email us at info at weru.org um, if they've got questions or comments for our guest, Alix Hopkins. Thank you. Um, I also wanted just to mention, uh, yesterday in at the class, they asked me, well, what did, did you ever do anything in your own community? And I actually <laughs> was involved with my own land trust, the Pownal Land Trust, and we got some money from the Land for Maine's Future to link up Bradbury Mountain State Park, which is about four miles west of Freeport and a very popular state park uh, with the uh, Pineland Reserve, which is also a state-owned public land. And we worked with 14 different landowners and took 10 years and it was all volunteer. I was paid at Portland Trails, but it was all volunteer and we worked really hard to, um, to create this linkage between the two. So I, I do work in my own community. <laughs> um, 
after I left Portland Trails and as I was working on my book, knowing that the lessons were broadly applicable, I was invited to uh, be part of a, a cultural exchange to the Czech Republic and um, never been there, never planned to go there. Voracious traveler, but had never been to uh, Central Europe. And it was about 10 years after the fall of communism and we, uh, six, a team of compliment, with complementary skills were invited to go and talk to people in various capacities about um, the ramifications of working and making a living in a protected area. And we were immersed it's in... Like a national park? It was a, like a national okay. park, which yep. is really kind of remarkable that they had even had the foresight to put together those kinds of things after communism. They did. They chose six or eight different sites around the country. And um, it was very interesting um, learning from their experiences. Again, understanding there were there was... They had good instincts, and but they needed some some help. And at the end of our week, ten days, um, we stayed up all night and wrote a report. Um, my my bent is communications, but there were planners and um, landscape architects and nature conservation um, professionals, and so we wrote this this report, making suggestions to them. Uh, and it was a very uh, meaningful interaction between between us all. And so really, you, were, you were kind of teamed up with professionals in the Czech Republic and you were North Americans yeah. basically coming and, and the team wrote the report. It wasn't right. you as North Americans coming in and writing the report. It was well, it was both. both. But it was us responding to right. what we had been, right. um, what we had seen and heard. Yeah. And I thought, gosh, you know, this is a place, this is, this is really cool because it, it works over here too. Mm. What else can I do? Mm-hmm. And then about... Um, Oh, I got a few years later, I was invited to help facilitate a series of cultural exchanges in the Middle East. And my very first response was, eh, I don't think so. I, I don't I don't know. I don't think so. And then because, think, because the Middle East? Because of what you read, you hear. I mean, I think of myself as an open-minded person, but this is a pretty, pretty scary uh, scenario there. And thank heavens about 10 seconds later, my... My better self said, honey, you get off your ass and you get out of your box and you go. And it was, again, one of those trust your instinct moments. And, uh, again, completely changed my life. Um, The way it works is that um, the same organization that I had been to the coast of Labrador in 1972, QLF, has hosted a series of of, – cultural and environmental exchanges for two decades now in the Middle East, in Central and Eastern Europe, in Latin America, in the Maritimes still. And um, first, a group of fellows chosen from the Middle East comes here to northern New England and visits with uh, groups and individuals. They do homestays. They talk with people from Acadia, Mancos Heritage Trust, Friends of Acadia, um, but in northern New England. And they bond with each other. There are Arabs, Israelis, Christians, some of whom can't tell their families that they are traveling with Arabs, Israelis, or Christians because it's that, mm. you know, it's that divisive. Um, but they have a great time together as Middle East fellows, and then they also get to meet with people in northern New England and get to meet meet Americans, some, some of whom for the first time, so they have a better sense 
of us and we of them and then it, the roles are reversed and a few months later the North Americans travel to the Middle East mm. and were, uh, have been in Egypt, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon and Oman and I have to say I was actually blown away by the people I've met again as I said I'm mm-hmm. open minded but mm-hmm. I had no clue mm-hmm. and, and most people have no clue they are resourceful dedicated, talented kind, courageous in ways that we can't imagine the things that they deal with every single day and yet, and we can't imagine they were even have time or the inclination to do any kind of community building or environmental work mm-hmm. and yet they are embarked on projects that are so meaningful, just like we are mm-hmm. but they are doing it with the kinds of courage that we can't even mm-hmm. imagine Because they have this backdrop that we are very well familiar with from the headlines and news reports and film I suppose, and yet they're living their lives, yeah. and their lives include the desire for green spaces and um, appreciation yeah. of being able to view wildlife, just like we have. Right. Yeah. It's not only desire; it's passion. Yes. So, tell us the story of the the Gazelle Valley. Oh, uh, well, in Jerusalem, um, there is a seventy acre sliver uh, triangular sliver bounded by highways and high rise apartments. And um, over the years, it, it, it has been home to a herd of real gazelles, five or six, in, really in the middle of Jerusalem. Mm. Um, and it was slated for development. And, you know, I was recognizing this story from my work, you know, from Portland Trails, from other conservation work. It was slated for development. And a group of neighbors teamed up with a nonprofit called the um, Society for the Protection of Nature in Israel and various other community development people um, to try to save it from the development. Um, they, they wrote stories. They took people on walks. They talked about the importance of the gazelles and how it was very unusual. They didn't even have any urban uh, nature parks in, in Jerusalem at the time. And they... Um, they launched a broad public campaign to defeat the uh, the development project and were successful and now have been charged with creating uh, the, the recreational uh, aspects of this nature park. And I have been there numerous times um, and talked with a variety of different people who really went to the mat on this project. And and again, we think, oh, yeah, well, that happens all the time here these days. But um, for them to have undertaken that in the middle of the city with, um, you know, bombs flying over in places and, and uh, the political division, the religious division, it, it is uh, become, you know, one of the most popular and and beloved um, parks in Jerusalem and there's a other a small nonprofit nearby called the Jerusalem Bird Observatory that is right uh, is located right near the government buildings where they have a bird banding station and it's the the Middle East is along the uh, the flyway between Europe and Africa uh, along the Great Rift Valley, and millions of birds pass through these places, and so they they um, 
engage kids in the bird banding and in the importance of conserving wildlife and bird life. And they they train and spawn, spark, I guess I'd say spark, the careers of so many p- kids who come through and get engaged by these these um, these birds mm. and by the whole process of that. Mm. You may not know the story, but I remember meeting one of the uh, QLF fellows um, from the Middle East here, um, and uh, his or her work, and I can't remember which, um, was involved in the cedars of Lebanon. Oh, his, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's another that story. story. Yeah. yeah. I, I, so well, it remind us, I mean, cedars of Lebanon, biblical? Biblical. Biblical, biblical importance. Biblical uh, importance. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, thousand-year-old trees and... Um, they this this particular uh, it's a protected area called Al Shuf Cedar Reserve, and actually several people in this neighborhood in in this listening area are my colleagues. Can I name some yes, of them? Please. Dave Mansky and Charlie Jacoby from the Acadia and uh, National Park, and Stephanie Clement from the Friends of Acadia. I have traveled with all of them, and I'm very and Ted Hoskins. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the Blue Hill and um, Idaho region, uh, mm-hmm. our fellow fellows. Mm. And uh, anyway, the Cedars, the Al Shuf Cedar Reserve is located about uh, an hour from um, from Beirut, and as such, is just a, a, a as ripe as a not only in a recreation area, but also as a an educate environmental education um, opportunity for them to teach people who are urban dwellers about the importance of forest conservation, conservation in general. And um, several times uh, I, I heard this great story about one of the, the recent uprisings. People um, who worked at Al Shuf and the communities, there are 15 communities around it, were so adamant that uh, no one come and uh, Cut down these trees that they uh, put landmines on the road, on the roads outside of the, mm. uh, of the area. But the the cool thing about this project, in addition to the absolute stunning beauty and serenity and and actual sacredness of that whole forest, is that um, the the, um, the the reserve uh, staffing has decided to, to, in their wisdom, to work with the 15 communities to train them as guides. To, they also create um, delicious and beautiful um, jams and jellies and spices. Mm-hmm. And they also uh, have started and soaps and uh, they work with the with so woodworkers are using the products of or the or the crops of that area. Yeah, yeah. using them and also contributing to their own well being, mm-hmm. and creating passionate advocates for the sanctuary and their their products that are good quality products. So they are sought after products. They sell some of them in Beirut. They sell some of them there in the various there are four or five entrances to the to the reserve but um so it's that is also being done the the nature conservancy focuses on those kinds of efforts as well that there's an economic development component Mm -hmm. community development economic development environmental education conservation so it's a win-win for all involved and uh the trees themselves are just stunning Mm. and um any tree in the middle east in many places is under threat 
because it's a source of fuel in a place that doesn't have fuel that the average person can use. Right. So it must be um, a little bit like um, elephants and ivory in Africa. Yeah. You know, it's both something to be um, amazed at, but it's also it's a, a lifeline for right. some people. Well, that's a, a good point. Is there also in in many people's backyards are gigantic cedars. Mm. So it also teaches the people who who own these seeds, well, they probably don't, they, who steward these cedars, it teaches them about the importance of what they have in their own backyard, right. the sacredness and um, the importance of conserving them in their own ways. Mm-hmm. So, You're tuned to turn, Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We're talking about collaboration and conservation stories from Maine and the Middle East. And our guest this morning is Alix Hopkins, who's a consultant and uh, project director of something called Riverwalk in Biddeford, Maine, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And she's the author of Groundswell, Stories of Saving Places and Finding Community. And uh, we don't have our phone lines up um, today, so we're missing you, um, listeners. Um, But if you'd like to ask us a question or make a comment about our our topic this morning, give us an email at info info at weru.org. So, Alix, based on, um, I, I don't know why you didn't learn, but You've written Groundswell. Now you're you're thinking about a book, or you're acting actively involved in, in writing a book about yeah. the Middle East. Yeah. Well, I'm not thinking about it. Um, <laughs> I, it's it's I'm doing it. Yeah. I, I've lost my mind. I think there are two qualities that one must have in order to undertake something like this. You have to be passionate about it, and you have to be crazy. And luckily, I have both of those in <laughs> hand, which is good. But um, I I because of as I said, the the humanity of the work that that we start, that we started here you know I started in my own backyard and also um to, to my travels to the Middle East more people need to hear about the the, the real the 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 inspiring stories of people um, who are doing some of the work, as I said, so much similar to what we're doing here. And so I am collecting the stories. I've collected a couple, and it's a lot more daunting because it's so much further away. I've been to the Middle East five times. I hope I go twenty more times, but um, it's it costs you mm. know it costs a lot. I've gotten some grants. Um, I probably need a publisher this time, not the Trust for Public Land, but I so believe in translating the value of these stories. I have to be really thoughtful about how I articulate them. It's it's it, there's there's this dance that you have to do in order to choose the right stories to express it in the in the right way and to also inspire people um and and when i spoke to a guy from the state department about this project he thought it was a really great idea and he said well you should do this book but then you should also write a children's book Mm. using the the best stories because that's where you're really going to grab people and i when he said that i burst into tears because i knew that he was he was right but at this point i'm in the collection mode and I'm in the um, research mode, and even even still, you coll- collect all the information, but you have to figure out what are the themes and mm. what is the most compelling aspect of each of the stories. So how, I, I assume you're using your um, Quebec Labrador Foundation sources yeah. um, as, as one source. Yeah. How else are you co- collecting stories or begin finding out about stories? Well, I, I um, there is a, a man, a professor at the University of Guelph in Ontario who uh, collects headlines from the Middle East 
newspapers and sends out a e-newsletter um, periodically. And he has, I have actually spoken with him on the phone several times. He's such a resource because, you know, invariably out of 10 or 12 headlines, there's one or two stories that, that I am interested in following up. So a lot of it is done online, which is not my way. I'm a collaborator, but, you know, I'm ha- having to learn that that's a great way uh, of, of uh, collecting ideas. And uh, then I can be in touch with them and hopefully go and visit with them, um, mm. you know, at, at a later date. But it is really daunting. But if ever there's a time for me to be doing it, it's mm. now building on all of my experience and 150 QLF uh, fellows. That's not chopped liver. Mm. So, mm. you know, I can really, I've gotten to know many of those people, mm-hmm. which I really mm. appreciate. And they, I treasure them. Mm. I really do. They began as colleagues and they have become friends. Mm. I've stayed with their families at times and I've get gotten to um, go past just the, you know, go in depth, in, into greater depth. And who would have known? I mean, that's the story of my life. Who would have known? I guess it's the story of all of our lives. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And, and, and we were saying at the College of Atlantic class yesterday that um, it may seem to students that there was a straight line. As we describe it, looking back, there's a straight line. There's a path that we followed. But those of us in our um, mature years, there wasn't a path when we started out. And we didn't know that we were going to get to a point in time. Um, do you have stories of some of the people who are QLF fellows that you can kind of share with us, people that um, are making a difference in their, their lives that, who knows, it might turn into a chapter in the book or not? Yeah, well, um, there I can think of numerous, I mean, I could give you vignettes <laughs> from lots of them. Um, one particular um, guy is a Palestinian Christian uh, named Sammy. And he, um, very bright, very dedicated guy, really bright. And he, um, through his experience with QLF, he he is a, was an ornith. ornithologist um, but he also got his masters he was able to study in England through QLF was able to help sponsor him to um, get a scholarship to study uh, wildlife biology in in England and uh, he never even had a pair of binoculars and we took up a collection and bought him a pair of binoculars and we gave we presented them to him uh but he is curious and bright and he gets it about the community development aspect of of environmental work and conservation work and he um has also gotten an adjunct professorship at a university in palestine but he deals with he lives in jerusalem and to get back and forth between uh jerusalem and and Palestine, he has to wait in line for, you know, 45 minutes to go through a check line. And when I was in the car with him, we got through in five minutes in another check line. Mm-hmm. So he deals with, with the kinds of challenges and he gets along with everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the kind of person that anyone would be proud to know and call his friend. And he deals with... Um, with with challenges the likes of which as i said we can mm. we can't imagine mm. Mm. and and what do you suppose inspired him to become an ornithologist do you have a, a sense it, of that story well i think that remember i talked to you about the jerusalem bird mm. observatory mm. he went and participated there as a kid he had got an mm. internship there mm. and it changed his whole life mm-hmm. so i i really want to try you know try to combine the threads of all of those stories, the Gazelle Valley, the Jerusalem Bird Observatory, and Sammy. Mm, mm. Um, so they sparked 
his whole his whole life. Mm-hmm. We got we got time probably for one more story from the Middle East. If you've got um, a person or a, yeah. or a project that um, may be illustrative of, of some of that work. Well, I'll just tell you a couple about a couple of people who have been involved with the Shouf uh, Cedar Reserve in Lebanon. One is a guy named Munir who is a PhD and he's a mammalogist, and he has he is an irrepressible has an irrepressible um, personality and he uh, has he went to graduate school as well and obviously and um, he is doing mammal studies all over all over Lebanon and uses shuf as his um, as his uh, what would you call it uh, his, laboratory his laboratory right, right. right and but as an aside he started a um, a nonprofit called Animal Encounter near where he lives with with uh, animals that have either been extinct or were give were, were given up as you know inappropriately. He has a bear, he has some mountain lions, he has warthogs, he has uh, so there he saved these animals and brings in school groups to learn more about them and. Um, it's it, he has a, he's created a movie and, and you know he has an education component to it and because we can't we can't um, care about something enough to act on it or act to save it unless we know it somehow right. so he's kind of allowing people to get up close right. with, with some of these critters right and there was a, a wolf very unusual sighting of a wolf um, that they got him to come he was on national TV in Lebanon they got him to help uh, trap release the trap and it was an injured and trap it and rehabilitate it and then release it mm. and so he has a national um, mm-hmm. he has a national following now great let's see um, oh well here's a great question. How does someone find out about your book, Groundswell? Ah. And can they get it? Um, yeah, well, actually, believe it or not, there are only a couple hundred copies left, and they're in my barn now, which is really great. And what I would do is um, just Google, uh, well, my the, the email is info at ground. Oh, gosh. I'll give you my email. My email is awhopkins at gwi.net and just email me and I'm happy to, to help you. It's really great because of the last 200 books, I can, I can you know, be really thoughtful about where they go. So the name of the book is Groundswell, Stories from Saving Places and Finding Community. And uh, again, if you um, use your web browser to look that up, it'll lead you to, yeah. to that yeah. um, as well. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, thanks for that. Um, just reminding that there's time probably for one or two more questions or comments by email, info at weru.org. Can I tell you a little bit about the Biddeford Project? Yes, I wanted that. You were, you were okay. reading my mind. Biddeford. So, um, you know, I, I didn't live in Portland when I worked at Portland Trails, and I don't live in Biddeford, but Biddeford is a redeveloping mill town on the Saco River in southern Maine in York County. And... Um, uh, it was actually the perfect storm of a project because Bitterford was, uh, it, for for generations, Bitterford, most people only saw the river. They didn't see the river. They were working in the mills, extensive brick mills, and the, a lot of the mills closed down. And um, in the last decade, the mills have been changing hands and being redeveloped into affordable housing, artist housing, market value housing um there are arts organizations um there are um a lot of young people moving in because the real estate was affordable some of whom are fixing up places and 
uh, renting them or selling them. or um, And along the scenic Saco River, one of the major rivers of Maine, which also is uh, Saco, the town, is also on the other side of Biddeford. And uh, the river itself has spectacular vistas that most people have never mm-hmm. seen. And uh, as part of this redevelopment, there's a main street organization called the Heart of Biddeford there, a uh, really dynamic um, group working with all of the different, a lot of different businesses and um, political municipal officials and political figures um so as a renaissance undergoing there and the the river walk itself has been um about four and a half years in the making as kind of the spine of the whole redevelopment and i have been part of the project for four and a half years probably because of my portland trails experience and it has been the greatest another great gift again at the intersection of arts and culture uh environment education transportation, economic, and community development. And um, we've worked with people in both cities, with the Heart of Biddeford, the Main Street Organization, with um, parks and rec departments, uh, business owners. It is, we don't even have to, because of all the other examples around the state, we're not starting from scratch. People are, are really enthusiastic about it. And my role is to build public and political support for the project and help move, keep things moving along. Um, and it has been what I call the perfect storm of a project. And I have been really so enthused. I wouldn't just take on any old project, but here's this little, little city um, that it, it just being part of this renaissance is just so exciting. Mm. Um, and I just, uh, and the trains, train from Boston stops there. Mm. So it has myriad reasons for it to be a success. And uh, it's so far, we, you know, we're, we're, we're rolling. Mm. And, it's really and, and like the Bronx River, it seems like it's it's a, it's a reclamation of a community asset that had been kind of let go because yeah. it was it was industrial and people don't kind of recreate where there's industry. Now there's this up opportunity to have this wonderful river walk. Right, and yeah. and also the trash to steam plant has was recently um, disbanded. Um, there's a big blue stack there, and uh, it was disbanded. And um, people are so excited because they will be taking down some of the corrugated metal buildings and the mm. stack will probably stay there but it's it, it, it when the wind was right it would emanate <laughs> you know not right. so great smells right. and the other thing is the university of new england is cited there so there's a lot of talent and energy uh so it, it really is one of those um uh magical projects. You've described yourself as a serial collaborator, and certainly the stories you've told us this last hour um, demonstrate that. Is there anything that you um, would say to potential collaborators out there that might be listening in their communities? That um, Where would they get started? Are there particular lessons that you would convey to them? Yeah, um, well, I, I, I would say two things. Just start, number one. Number two, ask for help. Number two, consider all possibilities, likely and unlikely partners, because sometimes the darndest people show up and help you, and you might not think they would have any interest or inclination or or talent, and they do. Mm. And these kinds of projects, you know, unearth real potential Mm. and um, Mm. create a clear vision. Um, get, get, get together with four or five people who you think you know have have common passion for this vision and be open to new ideas, new energy, but create a clear vision, tell the story, get the word out there, and um, 
ask for help. Hmm. Those are, you know, simple terms. You, you can, I mean, everyone started somewhere. <laughs> you know, I've had people say, well, we're, we're a nonprofit. You know, everybody else has started with so much more. Well, everyone has to start somewhere. So if you have a good idea, go with it. Great. Well, thanks so much for being with us. Um, I'll just remind listeners that uh, this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association with offices in each county. Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. And uh, next month, um, March 8th, we'll bring back the show that was um, canceled by the storm. And we'll talk with folks from the Maine Folklife Center and the American Folk Festival. That's on March 8th. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guest um, this morning, Alix Hopkins, is a consultant, project director of Riverwalk in Biddeford, and author of Groundswell, Stories of Saving Places and Finding Community. And she's at work on a book of stories of of conservation and and places and people in the Middle East based on her work with the Quebec Labrador Foundation. Uh, Thanks to our guests who um, uh, listened, and uh, those of you who um, usually call in will hope that that phone system is replaced um, relatively soon. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.